This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. New bigger picture um, perspective to our Zen practice. And I point there to um, people like Teilhard de Chardin, who saw human consciousness and awakening heading towards an omega point where the whole planet of human beings would be awakened. That's the omega point. The alpha point being the first cell, I suppose, 14 billion years ago. So in this journey, we may say in theological terms, God has lost herself in creation. And the whole Atman project is for God to find God again through the human instrument. That's the big picture movement that we're on. And I think Zen does well to, to have that as a background now. I think the time has come where Zen can take, can go back to a bigger picture metaphysic, a bigger picture meaning that humans have been struggling with um, for many thousands of years and been, been needing to have, whether it's a Dreamtime explanation, whether it's a Genesis explanation, whether it's a Bhagavad Gita or Mahabharata explanation. But we need some schema in which the common person now can focus. There's been a generalized depression um, with the death of God. There's been a generalized depression running through the populace of almost every nation. Existentialism, atheism, nihilism, uh, absurdism have been dominating in chaos theory. All very, all very rightly so. All very rightly so. I mean, they, that movement has been the action in the Trimurti. That's the action of Shiva. Shiva destroys all the old field so the new fellow field can be planted with new seed. Shiva is absolutely needed, the god of destruction, that the force of destruction is totally needed. Some would argue Jay Krishnamurti was the Shiva figure, the Shiva teacher of the 20th century. For 60 years, he destroyed everything that was there. Every idea, every thought, every every concept was destroyed on the public arena by J. Krishnamurti. He became the Shiva figure, the Shiva teacher of the 20th century. Zen had already been doing that, but that had been lost. That movement had been lost. Um, uh, so right now, I think we're in a fallow period where um, and this part of our Kali Yuga, the fourth Yuga, according to the Hindu map, uh, we're in a fallow period, but also a crisis period. We're in a crisis period as well. The old forms have pretty well been destroyed. Church attendance is at its lowest ebb in 2,000 years in the Christian tradition and other traditions, perhaps. Um, we're in a very low ebb, and um, we're looking for some new directions and I think it's time even Zen takes on a new bigger picture metaphysics where are we all heading is Teilhard right is it toward an omega point 
uh, where all humanity awakens into the future. Seems to be very cogent to me. I like to think that that purposeful goal has a deep sense, of, it does have a deep sense of meaning to me. Um, and so in my world, evolution from a single cell to a very complex human entity seems to have a purposeful goal and meaning. That's in my, in my world and my view. In my view, I'm very unpopular in Zen circles because I, I love the notion of reincarnation as Plato did and as the early Christian theologian origin took from Plato the notion of reincarnation as a way of evolution. So the heart of this presentation is really evolution and how we apply that uh, to consciousness now, mainly. And four or five figures lately, as I mentioned, Payad de Chardin, Ken Wilbur, even the bad boy, Andrew Cohen, um, not K-A-N, C-O-H-E-N, Andrew Cohen, um, and also people like uh, Hugo Enemaya Larsel, the Jesuit Zen teacher, uh, who came through Yamada Roshi. Uh, he was involved in writing, he wrote a beautiful book called Living in the New Consciousness. And even Thich Nhat Hanh in his effort to bring together, his effort to bring together uh, Christianity and Buddhism toward the end of his life. And when I met Thich Nhat Hanh, he said, look, Christianity is a religion of love and the heart. The uh, foremost, wisdom is in the background. Zen and Buddhism is the wisdom as uh, a wisdom tradition. Uh, Nisa Gadada summed that dichotomy up beautifully by saying, wisdom teaches me that I am nothing. Love teaches me that I am everything. But between these two, my life moves. Okay, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect I think of it that I'd like to uh, think about in evolutionary terms is um, the need, as Wilbur said, as he, he gave a, over the years, Wilbur developed this, Waking up was the traditional uh, goal of spirituality. Now we also need, we need to grow up. So waking up and growing up have become, have come together. The genius and pioneering work and brave work of Freud in the 1870s in Vienna began the modern movement of growing up. That began the modern movement of growing up. So we now we see an evolutionary movement that very uh, Majid has been a great part of. Joko was part of in her own way with her work on the Enneagram and other work, but I'll get back to in a moment. But the need to bring therapy together with spiritual practice has become uh, an immediate and amazing evolutionary need that's come together. Waking up and growing up, as Wilbur Brantley has come to uh, see as totally necessary. And so the bird needs two wings to fly with. We can see that. You can't have one without the other. Traditionally, waking up was enough. Waking up was enough. But things have, think this is an endless evolution of, of consciousness we're talking about. There's no end to it, really. Um, more and more light comes, but there's always more and more light to be found and discovered and more and more stability, et cetera. So we, can't, we don't see an end point to this, this a matter of evolution in terms of consciousness. So um, 
I relate back to my meetings with Joko, our founding teacher of this lineage, who was, in my mind, one of the great figures of Zen in the 20th century, an incredible woman. She used to say, um, the only thing worse than doing session is not doing session. She was a reluctant student. I mean, I might say to myself, the only thing worse than doing Zazen is not doing Zazen. It's the same, a similar thing every morning or whenever I have to do it. But you're driven. You're driven. When the great artist Ian Fairweather was asked, uh, what do you do? He said, I paint, damn it. Damn it, I paint. We're driven to do what we have to do. And this is, this is part of evolution. This is part of evolution. Um, thinking mind is on the periphery of this. When we sit in Zazen, thinking mind debates. Our teacher Hogan Sain used to say, someone would say, how do I decide? He said, let your Zazen decide. Aiken Rosa used to say, when you make a head decision, often it might, it's always going to be overruled by your gut feeling in the end. Krishnamurti used to say, the river creates the banks. The banks don't create the river. It's the river that's creating the banks. He also said the inner will always overcome the outer structures. The inner will always. Freud could have said equally as well, so that in 1873, the inner. Um, the inner reality will always overcome the outer reality. Krishnamurti had a lady who came to him every time year he visited India, a woman called Mata. She came from a wealthy family. She was a great dancer. The family had given her an arranged marriage and she was very, very unhappy with it. The energies weren't coming together. And every year for years, she'd come to an interview with Krishnamurti, cry her eyes out for an hour and a half and leave. It was all about the unsuitability of the arranged marriage. That amazing conflict in people, everyone can attest to this, an amazing conflict between your inner river and the banks of the river. Um, uh, and the structure can go on and it can make you sick. But in the end, the river will always have its way. As one teacher in America used to say, who became a very bad boy, the fire must have its way in the end. And whatever you do, whatever metal structure you bring in, whatever you do, the inner reality will always overcome the outer. I mean, if, if you get caught in that incredible conflict, um, you can become not only physically sick, you can become mentally sick if it can't be resolved. Because in the end, that inner river, that inner fire must have its way. And you may call it the force of Kundalini, you may call it way-seeking mind, which my teacher Hogan called it, the way-seeking mind. But that is the force of evolution for each one of us personally. And I always admired Joko for always, Shishan Wick said, Joko was always trying new things. She'd try a, she tried a raw diet for a while and she grew her own vegetables. When I met her in San Diego, she said, I'm just trying Pilates but I've just had an accident and I'm just getting over it. With Pilates, I tried too hard, but I'm going back to Pilates. And then she used the Enneagram, the nine uh, the nine personality types, so strongly did she use that in her sangha to such creative effect. Um, 
you know, I mean, I'm just starting to study the Enneagram a little bit. When I look at Andrew, I see a type four who's now become a very good type nine subset. Um, <laughs> type nine's the peacemaker, they're very good at, at, at holding the sangha together. Type four is the creative artist, the sensitive poet, um, which I, I can see in Andrew immediately. We can see it more easily in others. For myself, I can see the type four has become the type eight, which is the challenger, the disruptor. I just stood for the Greens against Craig Kerr. My Zazen has forced me to do that. It's very interesting, this process of evolution within us and also outwardly, also outwardly. Um, when I look at Putin and Trump at the moment, I see the two black knights creating mayhem, the two major disruptors on the planet. But they're also part of the process of evolution, part of the big, the big self that's playing out this amazing Leela that's got endless time to do it. Four billion years ago, the first cell came into being. Four billion years. I mean, how many lifetimes are left does Brahma have to play with to play this incredible journey out? It's an amazing journey. It's wonderful to be on it. And I think it's good to take interest, as Krishnamurti used to say, Start with the outer, look at what's happening out, and then come to the inner. Don't become too obsessed with yourself initially. Always look at the world new, see what humanity is doing on the outer, then come to the inner. That's more healthy. And I think it is. Whether we, we take the big picture, then come to ourselves, and then go back again. Movement, movement on the gestalt all the time is a healthy movement. Seeing the old, the little, the young ladies face and then suddenly seeing the old lady, you become very good at moving back and forth on your gestalt. I think it's a healthy movement. And um, I think Zen is also part of this process of evolution. We have some big questions in Zen. What about the Koan tradition that was handed down to us? How valid is that now? Um, the Koreans only use one Koan uh, in, in someone's practice lifetime. The Diamond Sangha has the uh, Cohen curriculum of Hakka and Zenji. How valid is that? Bunko Zenji says Cohen's are only, they were meaningful the moment they happen, then they become dead pieces of paper. The real Cohen is here in front of us every moment. Dogen's, and Dogen Zenji call that real Cohen now the Genjo Cohen every moment. So the Cohen system points to a human need to resolve. Um, Resolve problems. Archimedes, when he was trying to resolve a, an amazing mathematical problem, went into such a deep samadhi, he didn't notice the Roman soldiers entering his abode in Syracuse, in Sicily, and they killed him. They killed him while he was engaged in such deep samadhi on that mathematical problem. Isaac Newton, for months and months, sat at the table in his tunic absorbed in the calculus that he was that he was discovering and inventing, while the maid uh, at, at brought him food. The soup was all over his tunic. He said so that was his samadhi to resolve the calculus. It's a human thing. We, we can't just say Zen has a monopoly over the koan. <laughs> That'd be a joke. So what I'd like to point here today is the bigger human picture 
Zen is a subset of that. Zen is a wonderful vehicle, but it's still a subset of that amazing human journey. Advaita is another wonderful, equally valid subset, and it's uh, these vehicles are, are, are wonderfully important in their own way and their own right. And our karma determines what vehicle we step onto to take the journey, take the ride. But whatever the vehicle is, and these are all esoteric vehicles I'm talking about, the important thing is to step on the vehicle, not to stand there philosophizing on the curb. The bus arrives, and as Ramana Maharshi said, you don't get on the train holding your bags like that. You get on the train and you put your bags on the rack, you sit back and you surrender and relax. <laughs> and, watch, and watch the scenery, as Uchiyama would say, what's the scenery of life going past as scenery? But you're on the, on the vehicle, you're on the vehicle. And that vehicle is evolving. That vehicle is evolving too. And I think it's good to be open to that evolution. Um, and that's, well, I have admired Andrew. He's been willing to experiment and be open to the movements that life presents to, to bring about evolution of the vehicle. You know, the vehicle, everything is changing. That's part of our Buddhist notion. Everything is changing. And that's why they say sociologically, most people end up being left-wingers in the end because left-wingers are much more open to change than the conservatives. Conservatives want things to stay the same. So you might start life as a conservative, but in the end you end up being a left-winger. Because you see the change in Nietzsche, in permanence, is part of our fabric of, of uh, the universe. So I probably need to rest my talk there. I'm probably gone. I think uh, I'm not sure of Andrew's bell time there, but have I got three or four minutes left to round out, or am I on bell time now? Yeah, go on. Take, 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 give yourself some, a few minutes to run that off, Peter. That's fine. Okay, so... Um, yeah, so I, it's an interesting journey. Lately, I've been finding myself as the type eight, the disruptor. It's stressful to be a disruptor. No one, sanghas and groups don't like disruptors. I've had to point out a few home truths. No one likes you doing that. But I've had life, my Zazen has pushed me to do that lately. And I do it with great love in our uh, sanghas down here, um, particularly the Sydney Zen Centre. There's some issues there I felt needed to be pointed out. Um, when I stood for the Greens, I, I, I went through a tough cauldron of learning. People, some people hated me. <laughs> I went through what every artist goes through. When you put your paintings out there at the exhibition, some critics hate them. <laughs> so you need, I think everyone in life needs to individuate to a degree where you, as Aiken Rossi says, you personalise the Dharma, you personalize the teachings for yourself. You individuate in a Jungian sense. And you have to have to be able to withstand the the uh, slings and arrows of outrageous criticism. One has to wear that as part of that uh, standing alone to find out, as Krishnamurti would say. And I think that's part of the journey. And um, but equally, fellowship, Sangha is incredibly important to me and to all human beings, except if you're an amazing hermit that never needs to see another person in your life. 
and even uh, even some of our Tibetan hermits aren't quite like that. They they always seem to come down from the mountain to give to give uh, to write a book or to give a uh, give a, do a lecture tour. So pretty well all human beings, because they come from other human beings, mother and father, <laughs> they all seem to need human company and fellowship. So um, as much as I may be disruptor lately, I don't want to destroy my fellowship and my sangha by doing that. One has to be a little bit skillful in a Buddhist sense about how one does that. So, um, yeah, so I, I've just given a very big picture again, huge landscape of the sort of themes and ways that I'm moving. And my essays that I aim to write will be will be kind of aspects of these things and, uh, that I've outlined today. I want to write a series of essays. And look, it's looking about where we're going, where Zen will be going as a vehicle, because I think it's still probably the best vehicle on the planet, the most wonderful vehicle on the planet uh, for where we are in our lives today. I still think Zen is an amazing vehicle. I go to Advaita. The problem I have with Advaita often is people get stuck in their words all the time. Sailor Bob's meeting is wonderful in Melbourne, but people can't stop verbalising. There's no period for watching silently the thinking mind. There's no periods of silence. People are just continually talking like I am now. <laughs> so I, I'm very grateful we had that Zazen a bit earlier. Um, so I feel Zen still has what it takes for humanity to lead us forward on this evolutionary journey. So thank you, everyone, for listening and um, would welcome any uh, questions, challenges, discussion, anything at all on that to do with any of that. Thank you, Peter. Just before we open up, could, could, could you just briefly restate what where you started when you talked about the Atman project and that sense of God losing herself in creation and then finding herself. If you could just, just briefly restate that and then we'll open it up for discussion. Yeah, look, I've, I've come to view the, the, reason, uh, the uh, uh, reason of existence. I think Jesus describes it better than any other major teacher with his three parables about uh, the lost and found. And we had the widow's coin, we had the lost sheep, we had, and we had the prodigal daughter. And in each of those parables, they're all pointing in the same direction. The greatest, the greatest thing in life for the universe, for God, for us, is the joy of finding ourselves again, God finding God again. The reason of existence is that amazing joy of finding again of God finding God again in out through our instrument. That's the raison d'etre, the modus operandi of Brahma. That is the, uh, absolutely it, in my view. The reason for being here is the moment of that joy, and then we call it Satori, Kensho, the awakening to one's true nature. That is the raison d'etre of being here in existence. And I would say that Atman project, that is it summed up. Those three parables of Jesus are all saying the same thing. And the, the daughter that was there all along says, but Father, I stayed with you all along. 
the one who left and took the forts, the, the inheritance early, has been away years and years and years. Why are you celebrating her? I've stayed faithful and loyal to you all along. And he said, no, 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 but the one that was lost has been found. Great presentation, Peter. Thank you, and uh, thank you for the, the passion. Thank <laughs> you.